Hello, hello, and welcome to another podcast episode of Overpowering Emotions, where I talk all things anxiety, emotion regulation, big emotions. Today, I'm talking about the link between anxiety and sensory processing challenges. I've had a few questions around this over the past year. Uh, They really are closely related. And if I see a kiddo with sensory problems, I do immediately wonder about underlying anxiety because there is such high Uh, comorbidity between them. Now, of course, not all anxious kiddos are going to have sensory processing challenges and not all kiddos with sensory processing challenges are going to have anxiety, but we do see a lot of anxiety in our sensory sensitive kiddos. Um, And the relationship, it's transdiagnostic. I talk about being transdiagnostic all the time, but essentially that means that sensory sensitivity, it's related to social anxiety, generalized anxiety, OCD, PTSD. It doesn't matter what kind of anxiety is anxiety, it's anxiety, it's anxiety, right? And we see that here too, where that sensory processing, those challenges can kind of go hand in hand. Now, before I jump in, I just want to talk about that relationship between anxiety specifically um, and sensory processing challenges. And, and, And that's my focus is looking at that relationship. So I'm not addressing other things that could be contributing to sensory challenges or to anxiety challenges today. I'm not addressing that. I'm just looking specifically at anxiety and Uh, sensory processing. So I'm not also considering neurodevelopmental differences or giftedness or anything else, specifically just anxiety and sensory processing. Because once we start adding in those neurodevelopmental pieces, it gets way more tricky. And we know that uh, sensory processing challenges are key pieces to the autism file, a profile, as well as the ADHD profile. And so those are kind of separate topics. I will be talking about anxiety and each of those other neurodevelopmental disorders, but today it's just sensory processing and anxiety. So first let's talk about sensory processing. So we're all on the same page. So when we're looking at processing sensory information from our environment, that's foundational. It's all about how, um, you know, our brain takes in that information and it's going to affect how we perceive and how we react to our environment. So any of the sensations that we get from the sensory information, um, that's how information is communicated from the environment to us. Now, some kiddos have brains that can easily take in that information and organize it all that makes sense. And so they're using all of that sensory input in adaptive, helpful ways. But there's other kids, it's really hard for them to take it all in. They can't organize it. And we all process information differently. Um, So how we present ourselves, it really differs too. And it can influence that sensory processing, how we're taking in that information can even affect things like our personalities. So researchers, they've shown, for example, that people who are more uh, introverted, um, shy, they're more emotional, they usually have more sensory sensitivities, right? So it's a, a sensitive sensory processing style than those who are more extroverted. And there's even research showing to our attachment style can be affected by sensory sensitivity. So um, sensory sensitive people might be more likely to avoid relationships or have an avoidance sort of attachment style, whereas if we're not registering sensory input, they might be more dismissive in their relationships. So sensory processing, I don't think that people realize how big of an uh, influence it has in our life. Now, when we look at sensory processing, there's usually four sort of 
this is the simplified view, but there's sort of four different groups of sensory processors. And I think it's rare. I mean, a lot of people might just only fall into one, but they might have, you know, overlapping and straddling different things. So those who are sensitive to sensory input um, versus those who don't really take in sensory information, right? So either overly sensitive or I'm just not registering any sensory input at all that's coming in. So those are two camps. And then we have people who avoid sensory input. So avoid going to crowded places, avoid going anywhere where there's loud music, for example, compared to um, those who seek sensory input. They're constantly leaning into things, smelling things, tasting things, right? Squishing themselves between cushions or whatever. So how we classify someone really depends on A, how much stimulation they need before they respond and whether they're responding actively or passively. So I'll give a couple of, of examples. Um, I worked with a girl many years ago who would literally, she'd go climb to the top of a playground structure and she'd literally throw herself off the top of the slide, like over the side, crash down into the rocks below. And then she'd get up like nothing happened, but then she'd go up and do it again and again, right? Until somebody was fast enough. Usually she only got it once because then, you know, we were realizing what the heck she was doing. Um, but normally it would look like she's getting up and about to go down the slide and then she would just crash herself. And I'm talking like she wouldn't try to land on her feet. Like she would like full on belly flop down into the ground. It's amazing that she didn't seriously hurt herself. Um, and then any other time if we weren't at the playground, she was just constantly squishing herself into people like side or pushing her feet against people, trying to crawl in between things, like really sort of squeeze herself. So she had a really high threshold. So she needed lots of that sensory stimulation and she was actively seeking it out. So she's my sensory seeker right? She has a high threshold, always looking it out. But then I had another kiddo who would accidentally fall off the same slide, but would still get up like nothing happened, right? Still crashed to the ground, but there's really no response at all, but wasn't seeking it out per se. So that kiddo would be low registration, right? don't notice. And I actually work with so many kids and, and some of my young adults who like one was talking about how she pulled out a pan from the oven without an oven mitt and some, and like put it on the stove. And someone's like, doesn't that hurt? And she's like, no. And then looked at her hand and it's burning. Right. And then she had to go get first aid for her burning hand, just not registering it. They're just not noticing. Right. Some though, it can be really tricky. Some look like they're not noticing it, but they might actually be so overwhelmed that their system sort of compensates by shutting down. And I wonder if that's what actually happened to her because everyone's like, oh, she's got such a high um, threshold for pain. But I wonder if she was just so overwhelmed with her, her, her sensory system um, that her system just completely shuts down, which we see in freeze, right? Where we dissociate. And so they seem undersensitive, but it's just, they were just so overwhelmed. So when you've got that low threshold kiddo, um, you, so, so that's the low registration. When you have that low threshold, um, I remember working with a kiddo who you would barely, like he was always getting into fights at school because someone would bump into him, barely brush by. It's just the wind of them walking by, right? Barely even touch, touching them. 
but he was so completely overwhelmed with that bump, right? That he was so sensory sensitive, just the tiniest little anything, just over emotional, big meltdown. Um, And then you might have someone who's easily um, overwhelmed. So same thing, they're overwhelmed with that sensory information. So they're actively avoiding anything that could be too loud anything like automatic flush toilets, right? These are sensory avoidant kiddos. So we've got sensory sensitive, they're not avoiding, but they still have those big emotional reactions versus the avoiders. And, And they're usually sensory sensitive as well, right? But we got to think they might not just be avoiding situations and avoiding the input. They might also be avoiding any situation where they have to cope, where they're expected to cope. So it's not sometimes even just about the sensory input. It's just the expectations that other people have on them around that. So like I said, you know, not everyone will necessarily fit into one category or another. Sometimes we see kiddos who will vary. Sometimes they're low and sometimes they're high. Those thresholds can really vary. And I tend to, um, well, even myself, I avoid certain sensory smells. For example, any grocery store with a huge olive department, it just makes me so nauseous. And so I avoid those sections. I'm overly sensitive to certain sounds, but not all the time. I'm overly sensitive to cold, but not when I'm skiing, (laughs) right? So it really depends. Um, And so, you know, I am sensory sensitive on the one hand, but I also crave and seek out deep pressure. That's probably my ADHD brown brain, right? So I love the weighted blankets. Um, So I just wanted to give an example of myself because, you know, there's no one category that I'm specifically falling into. I don't tend to avoid, oh, the the grocery store. Yeah, I do avoid that. Um, And there's times where I'm just, I'm not avoiding it, but just more sensitive to it. So we just got to look at the avoidance, the seekers, the sensitive, low registration. Now, when we talk about sensory overload, that's usually when we're talking about when we start looking at anxiety, but that's when our senses, they're just taking in too much information. It could be from one sense. It could be from all of them all together. It's just way too much information. And so it could be anything from being in a crowded place, loud music, itchy clothes, bad smells, overwhelming smells, being too hot, being too cold, whatever it is, our senses are taking in too much information for our brain to process. And when that happens, we go into fight, flight, or freeze. And so I see a range of behaviors. I will see the kiddo who will run away and hide. I've actually had a kiddo who ran to where their cubbies are with with their jackets and he would hide underneath the backpacks and the jackets. And everyone's trying to pull them out, pull them out. No, you got to stay but he's just so sensory overloaded with everything that's going on. The kids are singing in the classroom. There's a bright light, right? Like there's just so much going on for him. But that brings me looking at the anxiety and the sensory processing challenges. And there's sort of this chicken and egg thing that's happening. So on the one hand, anxiety, we know, affects our entire neurological functioning, right? It it, it affects what's happening in our bodies, what's happening in our brains. And that sensory nervous system, It's part of our nervous system, right? The sensory processing part. So it's responsible for uh, taking in information, sensory information. So from our senses, taking in information and making sense of all of that sensory information, right? It's, It's all good when we're calm, when our brain can organize it. All of that is good. But when we're anxious, the stress response is gonna trigger. 
And so when we're anxious and that stress response triggers, it heightens all of our sentence, our senses, right? It stimulates our body. And, and then we're way more sensitive to any sensory stimuli. We're easily overloaded. So if someone's anxious a lot, they usually have really persistent sensory sensitivities and, you know, persistent sort of overload and big reactions to any sensory input. And that can be true for one sense. It could be true for all of our senses. Um, I'm going to talk about the main ones like vision and smell, hearing, those kinds of things. Um, so with sight, and I've talked about this before, when we're anxious and our fight flight response is triggered, we become hypervigilant to our surroundings. So one of the things is we want to look out for danger. We're looking, 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 right? So all of our senses are going to be affected. All of our senses are going to be intensified. So with the vision, our pupils dilate so we can take in more light. We can take in as much information as we can. So we can see everything that's happening. But when our pupils are dilated, like I said, we take in more light. So everything seems so much brighter. And so it's easy to become overwhelmed with everything that's going on. Now, our brain with hearing, a couple of things could happen. On the one hand, I mean, our brain's going to be going a million miles a minute. And we might hear pounding in our head. We, we might have really annoying ringing, almost like tinnitus sort of thing. Um, we might mishear things. So auditory hallucina hallucinations, right? Because now we're getting, what's that? What's that? What's that? We're trying to get in as much information as we can about our environment, or we might so think we're hearing something there that isn't. Um, and any noises that are there can really overload the system. And so it can, can become really irritating, really overwhelming. I know when I'm stressed and my kids are trying to chatter and one's chattering here and one's chattering here. And then my husband comes in to ask a question. It's just so overwhelming, right? Like all of that input and I have to shut off the music. But oftentimes, so that's on the one hand, right? We're, we're easily overloaded, but oftentimes our hearing, and you might actually see this with some of the kiddos that are yours or that you work with or students that you're working with, the hearing actually turns down. So that's a protective factor. So we're not getting distracted by everything in our environment. We're not getting overwhelmed by all the sounds in our environment. So they might actually seem like they're deaf because they're not responding at all because the hearing part is shut off. So you could have different reactions, right? Everybody's different. Um, same thing with smell. We might be more hypersensitive to smells. We might be more aware of smells we wouldn't have noticed anyways, you know, if we weren't anxious. So we can see all of our senses are heightened. And because all of our resources, when we're looking at the fight flight, I've talked about this before, all of our blood has to go to the big muscles, right? All of our resources are sent to be able to prepare us to fight or to flight. So our extremities aren't really that important. They're sort of left behind. And so we might experience things like tingling or numbness, right? As the blood is kind of, it's not flowing. We don't have great circulation or you have burning, um, more susceptibility, just feeling cold. And it looks like you almost have um, frostbite. That happens to me quite a bit because I've got really bad circulation. Um, our touch receptors are affected. So we might experience touch very differently when we're stressed. And you've probably had that experience. If you're angry or stressed and someone comes to rub your back, normally you'd be like, oh my gosh, that feels so good. But other times you're like, no, don't touch me, right? So even our touch receptors, they're very different than when we're calm. Um, we can also get really cold or really hot. We get the goosebumps, right? Because our body's trying to self-regulate itself, but we can feel all of these sort of different extreme um things that are happening. 
our taste buds can become more sensitive as well. And we might actually get, when we're really stressed, we might actually get like a gross um, metallic or blood sort of uh, taste in our mouth or a salty sort of taste in our mouth. So we are more sensitive even with our taste. And so if we're already aroused, any additional sensory input, it's going to lead to sensory overwhelm, right? And we're just going to dysregulate. So on the one hand, anxiety can lead to sensory sensitivities. There's lots of research showing that anxious people tend to have sensory processing challenges, maladaptive ways of processing those sensory input, all of that information, and they tend to be oversensitive. So on the one hand, on the other hand, though, anxiety can manifest because of the sensory sensitivities, right? So just trying to take in that information, integrate it, organize it, make sense of all that sensory in information it, it can become so overwhelming, right? And then we're overwhelmed and then the nervous system responds accordingly. So there's too much information coming in or too much confusing information. It can overwhelm our body's sensory system. And so then the fight flight response is triggered, right? And, and then, you know, we can get into this vicious cycle and then they might start worrying about, oh my gosh, this just showed up. Um, or it, when is it going to show up? When might I be overwhelmed? You know, fire bill is a big example, right? I'm going to start worrying. And then I'm worrying about what other people are going to think, you know, and especially if I have to wear my funny headphones or if I have to be excused. So then they start worrying about, you know, any experiences around the sensory sensi sensitivities that they might have, right? And how's it going to show up? And, and they just start thinking and it gets them worried and it can even get them panicked. Right. And so then these worries, they start growing and I start wondering what about this and what about that? What if, what if, what if? And so then from that, we see generalized anxiety develop and we see avoidant behaviors manifest because of the sensory sensitivities in the first place. And even just managing that sensory input all day long, that can be so exhausting. Right. And so when we're tired, when we're fatigued, when we're exhausted, we are way more vulnerable to anxiety. So we got to think about those kinds of things. And the biggest link, though, when we're looking at sensory sensitivities that lead to anxiety, it's usually because kiddos don't have good emotion regulation skills. And so that's why, well, a big piece of, you know, when we look at autism and ADHD, executive functioning, they don't have great uh, abilities to regulate their emotions. They don't have the capacity to cope. And when they don't, they're overwhelmed. It can lead to an anxiety disorder. Or two, sometimes these kiddos, they'll attempt to regulate their emotions um, and like whatever is coming. So the sensory sensitivities are coming up and they're trying to regulate it, but they're doing it maladaptively. And over time, those maladaptive strategies. So in the moment, it might try to make them feel better, but those maladaptive strategies are going to be more problematic, leading to anxiety. So avoiding situations or venting, you know, I have a lot of kids who will just vent and vent and vent. And parents are like, oh, no, it's good for them to process things. And even other psychologists, it's good for them to process things. But if they're just venting, that's going to interfere with their functioning. It's going to make their symptoms worse. It's going to lead to anxiety. So we got to be careful with that, too. And and, and there's evidence, um, even just sensory processing challenges, challenges with emotion regulation, they just have a really easily triggered amygdala. And we know that that goes hand in hand with anxiety too. So there's lots of research showing that kiddos with sensory processing disorders 
So really they have atypical reactions to sensory input, right? They can't handle it. They don't know how to respond effectively. So it could be either big over the top reactions where it's just a huge emotional blowout or they're not responding at all, right? We know that those kiddos, they're at risk for emotion dysregulation and anxiety disorders later on as adults. And there's lots of different pathways that could lead to anxiety, which I've kind of talked about. Um, so there's just a lot of research out there about that overlap. And I know sometimes people are like, where is this? Like, why is this happening? You know, there's nothing else going on, but usually that's what's going on. Um, I can't go through everything in the research, but, but that's, you know, quite a bit of what we see is that overlap. And there's those different pathways that are happening. Um, but there's a couple of other things too. Um, we do see kiddos who are hyper, or hyposensitive, so they either are overly sensitive or under sensitive to sensory stimuli. Um, there's different things. So the hypo, like I said, they're not picking up, they're not noticing that sensory input. Um, so whether they're hyper or hypo, they have way more trait and state anxiety than those without sensory sensitivity. So trait is sort of more genetic inbred versus state based on this situation. So both of those are more likely to be seen in kiddos who are sensory sensitive. Um, people who are anxious in the moment, they tend to avoid situations that would make them feel any sensory input as well. Um, the one thing that I do want to see say, though, even though we do see a lot of overlap, it's important to see which is which. Is it the sensory processing that leads to anxiety or is it the anxiety that's making just everything more sensory sort of sensitive. Um, we know it's a sensory processing disorder if it's happening all the time. So I've been working with a lot of school avoiders. This is sort of the top of my mind still. Um, I have my training on school refusal. It's just so big right now. But a lot of them, it's been really interesting. And I've been wondering a lot more about the sensory processing things because in the mornings, there's certain things like clothes, right? Kiddos who are going through a million different outfits because clothes aren't feeling very good, right? And this has been a really big thing with a lot of my kiddos. So I know it's sensory sensitivities if it's every morning, including the weekends, right? If it's a problem every day, and even if they're going to grandma's house on Saturday, they're still having problems um, versus it's strictly more school anxiety if it's only a problem on school mornings. But then you got to rule out too, is it, you know, if you've got a kiddo who's wearing a uniform, could be, then it is sensory sensitivities. You just don't see it on the weekends because they're not wearing their school uniform. So you want to de definitely test that out because if there's underlying anxiety going on, or sorry, if we're trying to treat the anxiety and there's underlying sensory processing challenges, we're probably not going to get very far right? Um, especially if we're only addressing the anxiety, we're not going to make much progress. So that's why it's really important. If you can hear squeaking sound, my dog is sleeping at my feet and she's having a dream and her paws are actually going like this. So, um, so the sensory sensitivity, it's not a learned behavior. There are real developmental differences happening in the brain. And so that's why it's very common with those neurodevelopmental disorders, because there are a lot of differences happening in the brain just with how they're processing information. So for this reason, you know, there are some short-term things that I would recommend that I wouldn't necessarily recommend for kiddos when I'm just thinking about anxiety. Okay. Because there are brain differences that we have to account for anxiety. We don't want to accommodate. If you don't know why, check my previous, uh, 
um, episodes where I talk about accommodations. And actually I'm going to, I have all of my mistakes that we make training. That's totally free uh, where I do talk about some of those things. And accommodation is one huge mistake that we fall into. So if it's just anxiety, we're not going to be looking at making things easier in accommodations, right? But because of the brain differences, we do need to make sure that we're accommodating for that. So it's okay to minimize that sensory input. It's okay to offer accommodations if that's what we're looking for. But it's not just doing that. We cannot protect them from the entire world. So there's skills that they need to develop too. But you know, I, I'm going to be talking a little bit about that. So we're not avoiding situations and activities. In this case, we still want them to go and do those things. If we absolutely don't need to go, you know, if they don't need to watch a movie in a movie theater, and you can just watch it at home, then that's totally fine. So there are some things that you can avoid. But at the beginning, we do want to try to minimize and, and avoid things that will overstimulate them just so that they can have some uh, success with it. We got to know what our goal is. So if they have to work in a classroom, I'm going to try to make the environment way less stimulating for them, right? Um, in my office, and, and there's some things that are just totally easy, natural accommodations that we don't even have to think about. So in my office, not the one that I'm in right now, but my work office where I see clients, I have a brutal overhead fluorescent light. I hate it. It's awful. Um, but I soften it a little bit by having some soft lamps around the room, right? I choose not to listen to music when I'm stressed out. That's okay. It's not impairing me to not listen to music, but I can cope if somebody else has music on, right? I've learned to cope. So it's a both end. Um, I wear clothes that feel good. I'm not feeling good today. So I've got really cozy clothes on, right? Because I know when I'm not feeling good, I'm a little bit more, I feel stiff. I don't feel as good in, in my clothes. So there are those things that we can do. So if it's not going to be impairing, we it's not going to make a big difference at the end of the day, then we want to just make sure that we're looking at how we can change and modify the environment. Like I said, there will be skills and I'll be getting to the skills in a second. Um, we do know things like mindfulness activities, relaxation, meditation that can help reduce stress and sensory overload. And I'll be talking about that in skill development in a quick second. I'm just looking at the quick sort of things to think about as uh, sleep is an absolute must. Our systems cannot function adequately. It cannot manage everyday stressors very well if we don't get sleep. You all have probably had an experience with a tired kiddo. Emotion regulation usually goes out the window. So sleep is really important. And I would say sort of a foundational piece. It's really hard to work on anything if you've got an overtired kiddo. So if you're going to be working on something, get that uh, sleep schedule um, regulated and their sleep wake cycle regulated. Water, I've talked about water. It's really important because dehydration, it sends cortisol into our bodies and it makes us more vulnerable to anxiety and to sensory overload. And, and on that front too, you know, having a healthy diet is important. Sugary processed foods, it can overload our system. So we want to look at those things that just to help support well-being and success, right? So there are those pieces that we can do where we can accommodate, where it makes sense to accommodate or minimize some of those stressors, let's do it. But there are skills that they have to learn too, because we can't protect them, like I said, from the entire world. 
Number one thing I always talk about, sensory tolerance. That's key because oftentimes we're re-triggering the initial sensory stimuli, the initial sensory overload with our reactions to them and how we think about them. Like, oh my gosh, I'm feeling blah, 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 blah. What are they going to say? Blah, 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 right? We start just spinning. So our reaction just becomes so big and overwhelming that it's just a problem. So if we can learn to tolerate the stimuli, tolerate how our body reacts, we're going to support our nervous system to to recover way faster because we're not overreacting in a way that's going to re-trigger our nervous system to say, see, something is going on. And that's just going to send out more stress hormones and trigger that stress response over and over again. Right. And researchers have supported this. So, you know, looking at helping kiddos manage their reactions to the sensory stimuli, right? It's just in how they're reacting to it. That actually led to less likelihood of them developing anxiety and better management of that sensory sensitivities in the first place. So that's a key area. It's not to get rid of it. It's to change our reaction to it. And it's the same thing with anxiety. I always say you're cured from anxiety in quotation, air quotations, right? You're cured from anxiety when you're not scared of being scared, when you're not stressing out about all the physiological reactions that end up coming in. So that's really important, their reaction, working on that. And that's where mindfulness really becomes crucial because we don't tend to be mindful when we're experiencing sensory sensitivities, right? When we're getting overloaded, we're not aware of what's happening. And so when we don't have that awareness, we start to judge it. We start to overreact to it, right? We're overestimating its threat and actually what's happening. And it can even turn into panic and it's just making everything so much worse. And so if we're not mindful, we can't change our reactions. And that's what we want to focus on. And so if we can't change our reactions, we're falling back into the same old loop, which can lead to anxiety. So when we're looking at this, there's sort of four main pieces of mindfulness that are really important when we're looking at sensory sensitivities. So first, non-reactivity, right? That's what we're focusing on. Non-judging, not judging the experience, being able to describe it, right? That's, I talk a lot about keeping our curiosity brain, our problem-solving brain, our prefrontal cortex online. And if we can stay grounded, stay in our body, okay, I'm feeling really overwhelmed right now. That sound, it's killing me, right? And my stress, I can feel it in my chest. It's like a, I always say an elephant sitting on my chest. So being able to describe it and then acting with awareness. They're all helpful in managing that anxiety that comes from sensory processing sensitivity. And like I said, we want to optimize their success. So we are at first when they're practicing these four sort of mindfulness uh, skills, we want to make sure that we do eliminate anything that's going to be so overwhelming unless they think that they can handle it. I think we should always think that they can handle it, right? But we want to ask them, how is it going to be successful? So we do need to get you a little bit overloaded, at least. we If you're just already in a calm environment, we're not going to be practicing these skills. So we got to stretch you a little bit, right? We also want to make sure we're creating a supportive environment. So we're promoting, we're practicing this mindfulness. We're not just telling the kiddo to be mindful. We are practicing it all together regularly throughout the day. School is a fantastic place to do this, right? Along those lines too, so we're working on our reactivity or not reacting. We want, we've got to work on our emotion regulation skills. 
because the 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 bigger the emotional reaction to sensory stimuli, the worse everything is, including anxiety, because they can't cope with the emotional distress that comes with those sensory sensitivities. And so we're building that emotional literacy. We're being aware, right? We've got to be aware of and describing, labeling our emotions. We have to be building our tolerance and acceptance, right? And even persistence. I don't think we talk a lot, a lot about that. So maybe, well, it is, my sweater is a little bit itchy. I can feel it. And if I focus on it, right, I can get really uncomfortable. And then that just becomes so overwhelming, but being able to persist, even if my sweater is itchy, I'm going to work through this episode. I might be a little bit more distracted and, you know, um, having word retrieval difficulties more than often, but I'm not feeling good too. So I think it's just a compounding thing, but I'm going to persist through, I'm going to do this episode. So that those are all the things that we want to make sure too. And, and working on that underlying anxiety is important. So just like we want to make sure we're working on the sensory sensitivity piece, and you might have to have an occupational therapist to help looking at how do we um, sort of help with that sensory integration. That can be really important. And if there is underlying anxiety, we need to address that too, right? Because once that anxiety is addressed, guess what? The nervous system doesn't have to be on high alert anymore. The nervous system isn't going to be triggered all the time. And then if we're not triggered all the time and not on high alert all the time, we can respond to sensory stimuli a little bit more easily. We won't be so overwhelmed, right? When I talk about creating that environment, so lots of practice, lots of opportunities, we need to make sure we're responding in helpful ways too. I'm always talking about that. So taking the kiddo's perspective, validating, understanding that piece is going to be really important for them. Because if you're just like, here we go again, just wear the darn socks, right? If if we're getting frustrated, we're escalating, their amygdala is going to ring even more. So that's going to be a problem. So we want to make sure, you know, we are validating and encouraging and that they're feeling successful, right? And so if, especially when we're in the skill building phase, we want to make sure they're feeling successful, right? So setting up that environment for them to be successful and getting their input, If we need to reduce that sensory input and overload a little bit, that's okay. But we want to make sure that we are constantly expanding. So hopefully that gives you a good overview just of the sensory sensitivity. I mean, there's so many comorbidities with anxiety, which is what this whole series is about. Um, But that gives you an overview of that sort of chicken and egg phenomenon. But hopefully that makes sense of why there's such huge overlap between the two. So go help those kiddos be bold and courageous, and I will see you next week.